right. Well, we are uh, going back to the book of Ephesians today, and we're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, and, and this is really a, a part two uh, to the sermon I gave a few weeks ago, uh, the triune God and his holy people. We're really looking at the second half of this, and it really connects with the first half uh, of Ephesians, or the, first, the second half of Ephesians 4 connects with this part of Ephesians 5. Well, I uh, love watching the Olympics, um, like a lot, and so just get used to Olympic sermon illustrations for a while, because it's just going to be going on, um, and so I, I really just love watching the Olympics, and one thing that I've always wanted to do is it would be great if in every event, they would just leave, like in swimming, they would just leave a lane open, and they would just grab a random fan and be like, hey, can you swim this one? Just to watch the difference. Because sometimes you look at it and you're like, man, that is incredible. But it looks pretty easy. And then if you would just watch an average person go through it, you'd be like, this is insane. These people are superhuman. Like they just do incredible things. Uh, it would be a little bit more difficult to do that on like the balance beam or something because you, like, you might not even be able to get up on it um, to see. Now certainly there is this God-given ability to these athletes, they have been gifted something glorious that uh, even if you look at the swimmers, they're all, their bodies are all shaped like the same, like perfectly shaped for swimming. And like there's some God-given ability, but there's also some other thing that signifies the difference between an Olympic, Olympic athlete and just everybody else. And that's the sacrifice of training. These folks have been working their entire lives to get to this point. And that sacrifice involves two things for them. One, it involves what you don't do. Like, they have to eat really well, right? They're not eating donuts all the time, I'm sure. Uh, how they spend their time, they've probably missed, right? Everyone's talking about the, the latest Netflix series. They've probably missed it because they've had to train. And not just do they have to train, they have to go to bed early so that their body recovers, so that they're able to train again the next day, right? Like, they have to sacrifice all these things that you and I do that they just don't have time for because they're sacrificing for some greater thing. And then there's also the things that they do do. Like, they train constantly, over and over again. They're just constantly training. They have to sacrifice all of these things to continue to train and work. Why do they do that? Well, they do it to get gold, right? They sacrifice now for glory later. They're denying some sort of satisfaction in the moment for a greater satisfaction in the future. And really, we can learn a lot from that because all of life is a balance between sacrifice and satisfaction. Balancing between what sort of satisfaction am I going to take now and what am I going to sacrifice now to take greater satisfaction in the future. And by satisfaction, I don't just mean raw pleasure, but, but, but really uh, the reality of experiencing satisfaction in life, whether that's intimacy or acceptance or security, joy, all of those things are, are wrapped up in what it means to be satisfied. Experiencing the glory of getting a gold medal. Certainly that is satisfaction, but they've had to deny themselves some measure of satisfaction to gain a greater satisfaction. 
Well, in this text, Paul is going to talk about what it means to deny ourselves and fight against sin and pursue holiness. And we're going to see that there's going to be this balance between sacrificing now for satisfaction later. And what does it mean to do so? Now, if we're going to talk about this text, we need to remember what we said last time when we were talking about the pursuit of holiness in Ephesians. We talked about avoiding two key errors in pursuing holiness. First was missing the source of our power for holiness, trying to do it on our own, trying to pursue what does it mean to be holy just in our own strength and ignoring the power source for holiness, which is our union with Christ. That we are united to Jesus in the gospel. When we uh, come to Christ by faith, we are united to him. So that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. That we are in this intimate relationship with God through Jesus. So that the very standard that God requires is accomplished by Jesus and then lived out by us in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we forget that, it doesn't make any sense. We're just obeying a bunch of rules for no purpose. And we actually can't do it. We also need to uh, remember the second area, which is thinking that holiness is merely avoiding wrongdoing. Just avoiding wrongdoing. Like if I just don't do these certain things, then I'm holy. But holiness is far more than that. It's actually about loving neighbor positively. It's about doing things to the glory of God positively. And if our only pursuit of holiness is just don't do these certain things, we're going to miss the point. That would be like trying to become an Olympic athlete by avoiding junk food but never playing the sport. Right? You can't just avoid junk food all the time and be like, well, I'm an Olympic athlete. Right? Sometimes that's how we think of holiness, where it's like, well, I don't do certain things, therefore I'm holy. But I'm not actually doing anything to love my neighbor. I'm not actually like Jesus in any meaningful way. Right? We have to make sure that we don't fall into those two things. All right, so Ephesians 5, let's start with 1 and 2. Paul says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Imitate God. This is really like summarizing the last section that we were talking about. What does it mean to be holy? And setting up this next section. That what it means to be holy is to imitate God. Because he has loved us. Now we're going to talk about what does it mean to imitate God and how do we do that. And primarily, I think that Paul has in mind that we would worship him. That part of imitating God is worshiping God, pursuing him, seeing him as the greatest satisfaction in our life, the greatest glory in our life, and simply worshiping him. And as we worship him, we get transformed by him. Phoebe is the most focused right now. She is just like locked eyes. She's responding. We got this going on, right, Phoebe? That's right. Imitate God. And why do we do that? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. And sacrificed himself for us. If we forget this, remember, like, 
I'm going to just say this over and over this morning as I did last time we talked about holiness because we forget all the time and try to pursue holiness apart from the love of God in Christ for us. And then we think God is all about a bunch of rules. But we have to remember that he loved us before we diagnose the sin that we're going to fall into because Paul's going to get specific here And it's going to be challenging. But before we do that, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that Jesus sacrificed himself to pay for your sin and mine so that we could have relationship with God. We have to remember that. Now, what does he say when he says imitate God? He says live a life filled with love, right? He doesn't say imitate God by avoiding all these things. Now, he's going to talk about in just a moment some things that you ought to avoid. Certainly, holiness is not not avoiding things. It does include avoiding things, but it's not merely that. And we avoid things only because we're seeking to live a life filled with love. Selflessly loving neighbor. Now, the question that we have to ask before we get into this next section, which, again, is going to be challenging. Paul's going to get specific about some things, and it's going to be hard Why would we avoid such things? Why would we avoid sinful behaviors? Why would we avoid things that our culture regularly indulges in? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. Why would I avoid these things? And then remember Olympic athletes. They avoid things not because there's some sort of glory in doing that itself. It's for a greater satisfaction. I was watching and uh, watching them uh, talk to some swimmers after they won gold, and they always, sports uh, uh, reporting has got to be like the easiest job ever. Just ask them all the time, like, well, what were you thinking? It's like, that's a terrible question. What was I thinking? I was thinking, swim faster. Swim faster, <laughs> you know? Also, they're like, yeah, they, they just swam 400 meters, and they're like, ah. They're like, hey, how you doing? They're like, I can't breathe yet. (laughs) Like, let me chill for a second, right? But what do they say? They're like, I can't describe this feeling. I don't know how to put to words the thing that I'm experiencing because I've spent my whole life pursuing this thing. And now I have it. That's what we need to think about when we fight against sin. That's what we need to think about, a greater satisfaction. All right, let's move on. Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Paul says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. Now, before we go on, go back one. I need to mention here, when when Paul speaks about no one, no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, all of us are probably thinking like, well, shoot, this is not good. Because if I look at my heart, I see some of these things in there. Now, what Paul is not saying is that if you have participated in this in any way, you're excluded. And we know that because he's telling them not to do it, right? 
meaning he knows that they have done it, (laughs) right? Like he wouldn't say it if it wasn't something that had been a part of their life or something that they have been tempted to do. And so what Paul is not saying here is that any one slip up in any of these areas and you are done. No, he has already told you, you were dead in sin and you were made alive in Christ. You're united with Christ. You are already seated in the heavenly realms. How can he say you're already seated in the heavenly realms and say this, if we are sinners, right? Well, he can say that because what, what Paul has in mind here is a life that has been transformed by the gospel and is seeking to put to death sin, not perfectly, but seeking to do so, is a life that showcases you've been transformed by the gospel. A life that has been united with Christ. And your right standing before God is not based in what you do, but in what Jesus did for you. That's why we have to remember the gospel. And yet at the same time, there is a way that you can deceive yourself and others and not really fight against sin, not really repent, and when you're confronted by others or by the Holy Spirit, you harden your heart and you continue to do what you know you ought not to do and you've refused to repent of it. And you do so over a lifetime. That's the immoral impure, greedy person who does not inherit the kingdom of Christ. A person that that showcases they've never actually been transformed by the gospel because they're not repentant of sin. They're not being transformed into holiness. So if you feel like you are struggling against sin, take courage that this is not you. This describes a person that doesn't struggle against sin but runs into it. A person that is not grieved by their sin but a person who is pursuing it. All right, let's continue on. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, instead expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This harkens back to what Nate said last week, that when the when we are exposed before God, right, the light comes into the world. Jesus has come into the world to expose our sin. And what do we get when our sin is exposed? Not judgment. Grace. Grace is what we get when our sin is exposed. And we are transformed. Now, if you're not transformed by the grace of the gospel when your sin is exposed, there is judgment coming. Because Jesus is holy. And when he returns, he will come in holiness. And this is ultimately, right, this, this, uh, this idea that there would be no judgment is not satisfying to our souls because we see a world full of injustice. And we can't worship a God who looks at a world full of injustice and says, no big deal. There will be justice. There will be judgment. It will either come at the second coming when Jesus returns or at the cross of Jesus Christ. So where will you find yourself? 
Will you find yourself in Christ? Repent of your sins and trust in Him. And when your sin is exposed, run to the light. Don't run back to darkness. Run to the light and Jesus will forgive you and transform you. Now I want to highlight here, there's three main sins that Paul highlighted here. Now it's not an exhaustive list. Right? Paul highlights other sins in different places, but this is the text we have before us. So we're going to look at these three sins that he highlights. And we're going to use these as a template for fighting sin more generally. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Now these three sins are primarily an idolatry. Right? He says the greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. They're primarily idolatry because they're seeking ultimate satisfaction in a thing that can't grant it. They're seeking something only God can give in something that God has made rather than in himself. So they're idolatry and also, I want to highlight that these three are idolatry and also selfish theft, which is the opposite of life of a life of self-giving love that Jesus shows and that we are to imitate. Right? It says that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. He gave. These three sins are taking. They are idolatry and they are theft. So I want to show both of those so that we can understand it. And then we're going to circle back around to the strength of the gospel for holy living. Now to do this, to highlight these three sins, sexual immorality, uh, impurity, and greed, I'm going to actually start backwards. I'm going to start at greed and move backwards. Because I think we're going to start backwards because it's something we understand. Greed, we understand more readily, but we don't talk about it. And I'm going to finish with something we talk about in the church a lot more, sexual immorality, but we don't understand very well. So I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of link these two, right? We're going to start with greed, and we're going to work our way backwards. So greed, as what Paul describes here, is this idolatrous focus on material possessions, right? This uh, worshiping the things that God has created rather than uh, the God the creator, Well, this is idolatry because it's seeking for security and satisfaction in something God has created, right? It's a worship of material things. And if we worship material things, we become like them, right? We become like we worship. And so greed begins to take over. If you worship money, you begin to become like it. Everything in your life becomes transactional. Relationships are transactional because money is transactional. I give this, you give that. What God can do for me is transactional. I did this for you, God. Now you have to give me this. Exposes a little bit of a heart of greed because we've been worshiping material things and so we're going to see things as transactional. What others, uh, my relationship with others is the same thing. And so it means that I can't live a life of love because I'm focused on what I can get. You can't love when you're trying to get something. Love is about giving. Well, it's idolatry because we're worshiping the things of this world, but it's also theft. First, it's theft of God, right? In the Old Testament, God says, you are robbing me by not bringing in the full tithe. Greed, which causes us to to maybe uh, skimp a little bit on our giving 
and hold back more because of a greedy heart is robbing God what is owed to him. That's what God says. He says, you're robbing me by not bringing this in. But it's also a robbing of self. We're robbing ourselves of future satisfaction and of faith. We're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to to find joy in trusting God. And we're also robbing ourselves of the opportunity for the peace that surpasses all understanding because we're anxious about material things. You know, we think that if I only had this, if I could only get to this level of income or material possessions, then I'll be fine. Then I won't worry anymore. And then you get there and it's like, oh man, I could lose all that. The more I get, the more anxious I am that I'm going to lose it. Now, certainly, this, is, this does not mean, right, that there isn't uh, a godliness in pursuing wealth. That's certainly not what the scriptures would teach. It's what we do with our wealth, right, when we gain it. Are we seeking to gain it for ourselves and our own satisfaction or for the sake of the glory of God and the good of others? Are we pursuing this to, to raise everyone up or to raise me up? It's also a robbing of neighbor. God has given you resources that belong to your neighbor. Now, that sounds super controversial, right? But it's just what the Bible says, right? In the Westminster Larger Catechism, in its description of the the law, remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, it says at every, uh, every commandment, it says, hey, this is what this commandment requires of you, and then this is what this commandment uh, tells you not to do, right? And so on the commandment of not stealing, right, it says that I ought to promote the wealth of my neighbor. Like, when God says don't steal, he doesn't just mean, like, don't take anything from your neighbor. He also means help your neighbor, right? God has blessed you, not merely for your own sake, but also for the sake of your neighbor. In uh, his sermon, uh, To the Rich, uh, Basil of Caesarea, a 4th century church father, said this. Uh, He's talking about the the sermons on the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, well, you've read the law, right? He says, yeah, love God, love neighbor. I've done that. I've done everything since my youth. What Basil points out is that you actually haven't loved your neighbor because I'm about to ask you to give of your wealth and you're going to be dismayed and you're going to run away. And it shows that you haven't actually loved your neighbor. Basil says this, it is thus evident that you are far from fulfilling the commandment and that you bear false witness within your own soul that you have loved your neighbor as yourself. Look, the Lord's offer shows just how distant you are from true love. For if what you say is true that you have kept from your youth the commandment of love and have given to everyone the same as to yourself, then how did you come by this abundance of wealth? Care for the needy requires the expenditure of wealth. When all share alike, dispersing their possessions among themselves, they each receive a small portion for their individual needs. Thus, those who love their neighbor as themselves possess nothing more than their neighbor. Yet surely you seem to have great possessions. How else can this be but that you have preferred your own enjoyment 
to the consolation of many. For the more you abound in wealth, the more you lack in love. Now that's a, that's a harsh quote. But I think the reason we feel that is harsh is because we don't recognize the ways in which we have been influenced by our culture and our tendency toward greed. We have a tendency toward greed in which the idea that God would say some of what you own belongs to your neighbor is like, no, 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 I've worked for it, it's mine. Yet the scriptures would teach you that you're a steward of what God has given you. It's not yours, it's God's. And maybe he gave you extra because he didn't give extra to this person and the way in which the kingdom of God works is that you are going to give of yourself to someone else just like Jesus did live a life of love imitating Christ did Christ say heaven is mine you have no part here I earned this you didn't earn this no he gave of himself For the sake of others. We just walked through the book of Acts. And remember what was consistent through the book of Acts? When the gospel took over somewhere, what did they do? They were like, no one should have need within the church. We're going to give of ourselves so that we can meet these needs. Right? It said some folks sold their homes so that other people would have food. Right? Because they talk about this daily distribution of food among the widows. And how did they pay for that? Some folks sold their homes. That's how they did it. We look at that so often from our context and we say, well, you know, there's some nuance here. But here's the thing, okay? Do we apply the same nuance to the next two things we're going to talk about? Impurity and sexual immorality. We ought to be consistent. Paul puts these things together. Now, I'm not saying that there's not place for nuance. There is, right? Because the church met in people's homes, right? Meaning some people didn't sell their home, (laughs) right? It's very evident that some people didn't sell their home. But the principle is what we're getting at. Does my heart recoil at the idea that Jesus might say, sell everything? Where's my heart at? Am I worshiping things more than I'm worshiping the Lord Jesus? And am I trying to find satisfaction in this world when a gold medal awaits me? I'm waiting for something far better. Basil goes on to talk about how they're, they're, like you can't take any of this stuff with you, and besides, even if you could, you're going to look around in glory and you're going to be like, this stuff is garbage. Look at what I have. That's why we got to think about what it means to sacrifice now for something glorious later. Greed is one of these things that we talk about, we understand, we know, but we actually think that none of us, it applies to none of us, right? There's other greedy people, but none of us struggle with greed. We all struggle with greed because we live in this culture of greed. All right, impurity. Now, impurity can can be defined in a number of different ways, but I think Paul is focusing here on a couple of things, and I think he's focusing primarily on speech, right? Can you go back a little bit to where he talks about coarse joking? I think it's 3, 
four, something like that. Keep going. One more. One more. Yeah. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. I think this relates to some of this impurity and talking about what it means to be impure. Now, why it would impurity then be idolatry? Well, I think this is a seeking for acceptance and satisfaction in something that God has created, language and people. Seeking to use something God has created, language, to gain acceptance with people. Why do we tell coarse jokes? Because we want acceptance with others. Why do we participate in language that we ought not to? Seeing stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. Because we want to be accepted by others. That's why we do it. We're seeking for something that God has granted us, acceptance. It denies that we are accepted by God and seeks to find something that God has created. It's also theft, theft of God. It's using something God created, language and relationship for evil purposes. God has created it and we're taking from God and using it in a way that God has not designed us to use it. It's also a theft of self. It's a theft of my innocence and purity before God. It's a theft of my oneness of focus on God. Right? You know how this works. In impure thoughts or uh, conversations, it's not something that we do and then forget ever happened. Right? It encroaches on our brains again. It comes back. We feel guilt or even shame about it, and it comes back to haunt us because we've stolen something of ourselves, our innocence, our singular focus on God. And it's a theft of neighbor, stealing their innocence and holiness. Also, it's, it's, it's basically saying, hey, I do belong to this world. When God has said, no, you don't. I've purchased you for another world. You don't belong here. All right, the final one was sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality can be defined as anything, um, any sexual uh, interaction, relationship, or action outside of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. That's the clear testimony of Scripture. Um, Now, there is lots of work uh, today to undermine that idea, and to actually undermine it from Scripture, but it's the clear testimony of Scripture. It's really hard to argue anything else. It's the very clear testimony of Scripture. So anything outside of that covenant marriage between one man and one woman is sexual immorality. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Paul's about to get into discussion of marriage a little bit, so in a few weeks we're going to talk about that, but and, and why that's important. However, that is the t- clear testimony of Scripture. And this is an idolatry because it's a seeking for intimacy and through means of pleasure, not in God, but in those made in his image. That's why greed and sexual immorality are put together, because both of them are worshiping a created thing over the creator. Seeking for intimacy that God has granted to us in himself in the things of this world. Those made in his image. It's a theft as well. 
of God. We are made by God, meaning we're not in charge of ourselves. This is maybe one of the most uh, uh, challenging things for our culture. But the Bible teaches us that we are not our own. That we are owned by God. He has created us, which gives Him the right to tell us what we ought to do. Because He has created us. And if you're a Christian, you are doubly owned by God. Because you were created by Him, you are made in His image, and Jesus has purchased you. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. The implication of what Paul is saying is clear. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so to pursue sexual immorality is to steal from God. To say, no, 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 I'm in charge of my body. I get to make the rules. You were bought with a high price. Not just bought with a price, a high price, the blood of Jesus. It's also a stealing of self. Stealing intimacy and satisfaction that is not yet yours. It's a stealing of something that is not yet yours. It's stealing from your future self, the future glory that is granted to us. What does Paul say? It's a sin against your own body. God has designed us in such a way, he knows us, and he knows that breaking the way in which he has designed sex to work is going to harm you also. It's going to harm you also. You're stealing something that is not yours. Taking. It's also a theft of neighbor. Certainly all forms of sexual violence, which is, would be a part of sexual immorality, Sexual violence without consent, rape, porn, molestation, prostitution, all of those things are forms of sexual violence that certainly are a theft of neighbor. But also all forms of sexual immorality rob neighbor because it takes what is not theirs to give. If God has not granted it to give, then you're taking what God has not granted them to give. It's a theft of neighbor. Even if that person gives it willingly, you're taking, uh, if it's not theirs to give outside of covenant marriage, it's a theft. Now, this, we have to relate also to, to greed in that this is something that we speak far more often of as the church. We speak far less on greed, but we speak far more on this. But are we consistent in the way we apply it? We consistent in the way we apply it. Do we showcase with our lives such radical sacrifice when it comes to money and possessions that when we call people to radical sacrifice their sexual lives, it makes sense? The Bible would call some people to lifelong sacrifice when it comes to sexuality. Lifelong sacrifice. If we indulge in the ways of our culture when it comes to material possessions and then say, but you can't indulge in this way of our culture, what are we saying? It doesn't make any sense. We're not consistent. There's a reason Paul puts these things together because both of them act in the same way. 
They both cut to the core of who we are. They both are things of seeking satisfaction in this life and not the life to come. And we need to be consistent in how we do that. Now, we we have to be consistent in terms of knowing what the standard is and then also in living it out and also giving grace to those who struggle. Giving grace to those who struggle. All of us are going to struggle with greed and sexual immorality because we're still in this life and we still struggle with sin. But are we going to give grace to one another in the midst of it? If you find out that someone is struggling with greed and and they, they confess to you, you know, my giving isn't what God tells me it should be. Do we say, leave now? But if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm struggling with sexuality outside of the bounds of what God has designed it for, do we say, leave now? Sometimes. We ought to be consistent. We got to give space for people to struggle Now, that doesn't mean we're changing any standards. Absolutely not. But we got to give space for the Holy Spirit to be at work. Space for God to do His thing. Space to dialogue and and have conversation around this. And consistency. So that we give of ourselves in our material possessions to showcase, hey, this world is not all there is. And we sacrifice with ourselves also in purity before God because this world is not all there is. The ultimate question in all three of these is why do we need to sacrifice if God is good? Right? Don't you ask that question sometimes? Like if God is good and gives good gifts and clearly all of these things, right? Like we're lying if we say that these things aren't enjoyable because we wouldn't do them if they weren't enjoyable, right? Indulging in material possessions, indulging in sexual immorality, of course those are enjoyable. That, that makes sense, right? Because we're in a fallen place and we're broken. But, but we ask ourselves, right, why would God deny us something enjoyable if he's good? Well, first I want to tell you, that's literally the story of the entire Bible. Every place throughout the scriptures, God has taken someone who is righteous or pursuing righteousness and said, there's this good thing and you can't have it. Right? All throughout the Old Testament, there's this theme of the barren woman. In genealogies, in stories, there's all these themes of like this woman who desires children and is not granted them. What does it mean? Well, there's a mystery there. And sometimes the best answer is, I don't know. I don't know why God does it that way. Certainly not how I would design it. But I also wouldn't give of myself if I was God and come to earth and suffer on a cross and die for you. So maybe we should trust him. There are some answers that we can say. One, for sure, is that he is showcasing himself as the ultimate good. Part of denying ourselves is so that the glory is far better. Remember the Olympic athlete 
Denying self for greater satisfaction and glory. Not in the denial itself, but in what they get at the end. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. Sometimes we're afraid to say that. Because we're like, no, no, no. The godly thing is to do something not seeking reward. Not according to Hebrews. According to Hebrews, the godly thing is to say, I want a reward. That's why I'm going to deny myself. Now, the, the, the trick here is understanding what the reward actually is. The whole testimony of the scriptures and certainly of Hebrews is that Jesus is the most glorious in the universe. And our reward is him. Nothing less than him. That's how he rewards us. With himself. You're seeking intimacy or acceptance or satisfaction. Jesus gives all of those. He gives all of those. That's what he gives of himself. We get that reward. So we ought to seek him in that way. All right, to, to circle back around, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Why do we imitate God in these ways? Because he loved us. Why do we give of ourselves in our material possessions? Because Jesus has all glory and riches and becomes poor for us to be rich. Because Jesus has all purity and acceptance and grants us to come near to him. Because Jesus has intimacy with God the Father and gives us that access freely, that we get to join in the relationship of the Trinity through our union with Christ, we don't need to go take it from a place he's told us not to take it. We imitate God by loving like Jesus, selfless, God-honoring, neighbor-affirming love. Well, how do we do that? Paul tells us the end of Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. So be careful how you live. Don't, make, don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How? Well, first of all, not by yourself. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The stuff we talked about today, that's hard. We live in a culture that is telling us the opposite every moment, right? If you're going to watch the Olympics, you're going to see this like denial of self for satisfaction. And in between all of those, you're going to see, don't deny yourself, satisfy yourself now. That's every ad, right? <laughs> the contrast is pretty stark. <laughs> but that, like our whole culture is saying, indulge now, satisfy yourself now. We, we, we're going to give it to you. We're offering it to you. Come take it. That's hard stuff. You can't do it on your own. 
but you can be filled with God's Spirit. God's Spirit, the same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, lives in you. That's the power you have. It's not your own power. Now, what does being filled with the Spirit look like? Well, it looks pretty ordinary. It looks like taking time to think about your day and your life and not live it foolishly, to plan it out in ordinary means, and then to worship. How do we do that? Here. This is how we do it. We worship. Why does worship help us fight against these things? Because it gives us a little foretaste of heavenly glory. When we worship, when we experience the everyday means of grace, loving one another, being in each other's lives, giving of ourselves for each other, we experience a little foretaste of what glory is like. And it reminds us and it transforms us. We worship God and then we become like him. Just like if you worship money, you're going to become like it. If you worship Jesus, you're going to become like him. That's how we do this. The way of Jesus is a little like training for the Olympics. And it's a little different. One of the saddest parts of watching the Olympics is watching people sacrifice their entire life, make it to the Olympics, and just be two seconds off the lead and not even meet, make the final qualifier. Spent my whole life, two seconds, I don't even get to compete for the gold. Sometimes we feel like the Christian life feels like that. Work my whole life, deny myself over and over again, and for what? Yet, here's the thing. This is where the Christian life is different than the Olympics. You're guaranteed gold. Because your gold medal, your entrance into glory, was not earned by you. It was earned by Jesus. Jesus is the one who sacrificed in every place that you and I don't. Every time you're granted an opportunity to sacrifice for the sake of loving God and loving neighbor, when it comes to greed or sexual immorality or impurity, every time you fail to do that, Jesus did it perfectly for you. He already earned it. He already accomplished it. You are guaranteed victory. If you are in Christ, you are guaranteed victory. Our entrance into glory is the work of another. It's on the basis of the work of another. And that means, too, that now we get to simply walk in the path that he's already done. Why do I deny myself now? Because Jesus already did it for me. Now I'm united to him, and now I can do that for the greater satisfaction that he has promised me. This future glory I have to remind myself of. Because of the work of Jesus in the past, his love for me in the present, and the glory that he promises me in the future, I can cling to him and not lose heart in the sacrifices I give, but find joy and satisfaction in Jesus and in the life to come and endure now because of it. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we, we praise you for your glory. 
And yet, Lord, we admit that this is difficult. That there are many, many difficulties in walking into this, in living this out. We are not sufficient for the task. And so, Lord, like we, like we said a few weeks ago, we come now humbly and we confess. We don't come hiding the ways in which we struggle against these things. We come confessing them because you've already loved us. You've already done it all for us. So we get to come in the midst of our struggle, confess to you, and experience your glory, experience forgiveness, experience grace, and be granted power to pursue holiness. Jesus, would you do a mighty work in us now? Lord, would you not allow anyone to walk out of here today to hear this message and to hear condemnation, but to hear the gospel truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, because of that, would you grant us satisfaction in the life to come that we would pursue you now with our whole lives. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.